The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. Along with us, if you do not own a Bible, um, we do have some in the seats in front of you. We also have some as a gift that we would love to give you at our Welcome Center uh, after the service. We also have uh, a couple different books there, including a book by Dr. Timothy Keller, a pastor from New York, that we would love to give you as a gift, as well as the one mentioned previously that's out uh, in the lobby, a little red book. Uh, this last week, in addition to the concert that we were able to go to on Monday night, Neva and I were um, able to go out and see a movie together. And you may remember from last year that we are something of pretty avid Mr. Rogers fans. And so we got to go see the new movie starring Tom Hanks playing Fred Rogers. And I won't spoil it for you. We loved it. Uh, I understand that every actor is an interpretation of a role, but I just think Tom Hanks nailed it. And uh, you really leave the movie uh, getting a sense of what it would have looked like to talk to this man in person, to talk to Fred Rogers face to face, to meet someone who was so genuinely interested in you, who accepted you, and who loved you for who you are exactly in that moment. It was tremendous. And leaving that movie, reflecting on that movie, we were thinking about how over the last couple years, we've really seen kind of this resurgence of interest in Mr. Rogers, haven't we? Uh, Beginning with the documentary that came out a couple of years ago, Uh, there's also been a new biography published about him. Several new children's books with his poetry and music have been put into different forms of writing. There's been numerous magazine and newspaper articles written about him. Last month, we celebrated World Kindness Day, and you were supposed to wear a cardigan in honor of Mr. Rogers. And now there is this new movie with a figure like Tom Hanks playing the role. And what's been so surprising to me about this resurgence in interest in him is that it isn't really, it doesn't seem to be coming from the Gen X crowd, those who are in their 40s and 50s who would have grown up with Mr. Rogers kind of during his prime years. Instead, a lot of it is coming from millennials and Gen Z, those who may have grown up watching some of it, but not to the same extent. And so why is it that, that, that now we're seeing this sudden interest amongst 20s and 30-year-olds in a children's TV show puppeteer from two decades ago. Well, in a general sense, I don't think it should surprise us. I mean, who wouldn't want a friend like Fred Rogers, right? Who wouldn't want to surround themselves with people who affirm us, who love us unconditionally, who seem to hang on every word we say as if it's the last word they'll ever hear? As human beings, we are made for connection and we are attracted to the kindness and authenticity of others even if it's in a deceased children's performer that we'll never meet. But I also think there's a more specific reason why we are seeing this sudden interest in Mr. Rogers today in this cultural moment at the end of one decade and the start of another. Two recent studies in the last couple weeks have caught my eye. One of them uh, was a study on the effects of anxiety, depression, burnout, and stress in the workplace environment. And one of the striking figures that came back from this study was that 50% of millennials and 70%, uh, 75% of Gen Z have left 
a job because of the effect it was having on their mental health. I thought that was striking. 50% of millennials and 75% of Gen Z have left a job because of the effect it was having on their mental health. Another study, a recent report published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, reveals that after decades of morality rates decreasing and life expectancy increasing, the United States is no longer on track with other wealthy countries who are continuing to see a progress in life expectancy. For the third year in a row between the years 2014 and 2017, and I'm sure future studies will show this trend is increasing in 2018 and 2019, life expectancy is falling for people ages 25 to 64, people who are supposed to be in the prime years of their life. The highest jump in excess death rates, a 29% jump, has been among people ages 25 to 34, the age bracket that seems to be driving the most interest in figures like Fred Rogers. These findings reveal that there is no one primary cause of excess deaths, but it is the combination of destructive behavior from things like suicide, distracted driving, opioid, alcohol, and other drug addictions. One medical professor summarizing these findings, she said this, people are feeling worse about themselves and their futures, and that's leading them to do things that are self-destructive and not promoting their health. You see, this is the tension, I think, of the culture that we live in. We are desperate for family or friends who will love, affirm us, and accept us, yet at the same time, most of us are weighed down by a pervasive feeling of shame, the feeling of never being good enough or incapable of being loved and accepted, maybe unworthy of being loved or accepted. It is in many ways a dark time to be alive, and I think some of us this morning are echoing the refrain, there is no peace on earth, and perhaps God is dead. But the advent of Jesus Christ means that joy has dawned and light has broken into the darkness. The light of heaven has come to bring us joy, redemption, peace, and hope. And so as we continue our sermon series this morning in Advent, we're going to revisit this genealogy. And my hope is that as we look more specifically at the women in Jesus' family tree, my hope is that we'll see that the message of Christmas is one that it humbles us because our problem, our sin problem really is that bad. But it also encourages us because God's love is even greater than our sin. And so let's turn our attention now to the reading of God's word from Matthew chapter 1, and let's see how I do with some of these Old Testament names this week. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. 
and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salathiel, and Salathiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the, from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray together. Father, you tell us that your word will go out and will not return to you void. And so we pray this morning as we return to this genealogy that you would humble us to sit under your word, that you would also encourage us by the love and grace that is available to G- in Jesus Christ, and that we would leave here singing praise to your glory. We ask this now and give this time into your hands. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it is painfully honest about humanity. The Bible never shies away from the brokenness, pain, misery, or sin of the human condition. And if you're here this morning and you've never read the Bible for yourself, then some of what you're going to hear this morning is probably going to shock you. It may come as a surprise to you to hear about some of the important people who have played a role in God's plan of redemption as we see it play out in the Bible. But what you need to know this morning is that the Bible is not a story of good people being good. It's not of good people being good who have earned their right and their favor from God. The Bible is the story of normal people who often get it quite wrong, who are often quite bad, but who nevertheless receive the forgiveness, the love, and the grace of God. The Bible is not a story of good people being good, but a gracious God who loves and forgives and redeems broken, wayward sinners. It is this brutal honesty about humanity which makes, I think, the strongest case for the truthfulness of what you read in the Bible. I mean, I want you to think about it. If you were going to invent a religion for yourself that you wanted to spread as wide and as far as possible, how would you do it? Well, first, I think you would write a few things down that make you look pretty awesome, right? And then you'd write maybe some stories filled with model examples who are shadows of the kind of greatness that you yourself portray. If your most loyal followers failed, no worries, you're in control. You can conveniently just blot out their mistakes from historical record. No one has to know. Highlight the good, leave the bad, right? Not so when we come to the Bible. Abraham and his sons were men of faith. Yes, they were also liars and deceivers. Moses led the people out of Egypt. Yes, he was also a murderer and a grumbler. 
David was the great king of Israel. He was also an adulterer and a murderer who led the kingdom into utter disaster. Why does God choose to identify with people like that? The Bible, you see, almost never fits into our categories for how we think things ought to go or how things ought to be done. It's because God's grace is so unnatural to us that it only begins to make sense to us when we have become transformed by his love and his grace. There are five women mentioned in Matthew's genealogy. This is highly unusual, and it's not immediately apparent to our 21st century eyes unless we know a little bit about the ancient Near East context of Jesus' day. You see, women were viewed and treated as second-class citizens. Particularly in the surrounding Greco-Roman culture, women were objectified and viewed as property. They had very little claim to property of their own. Widows without children were essentially discarded by society. Their testimony would have held almost no weight in court. And this is why, as we showed a few months ago, that Christianity, early Christianity, was extremely good for women. They were seen, they were valued, they were given a place at the table in key positions in the Christian community. Jesus changed the way women were seen and treated. And you see that in the way women are treated throughout the four gospel accounts. Beginning with the women mentioned here, which we'll get to in a moment, Jesus shows tender mercy and care toward all of the women he encounters. He spends quality time with them. He speaks to them respectfully. They sit at his feet and receive his teaching. He befriends prostitutes. Widows are not only allowed into his inner circle, but they fund much of his ministry. And with his dying breaths, he ensures that his widowed mother will be cared for in his absence. Most strikingly, it is the women, one of them a prostitute, who are the first key witnesses of the resurrection. You see, if you're trying to make up a religious story that you want to convince other people is true, and you live in a first century Jewish ancient Near East context, you don't do any of that. You don't include any of those details. And here they are. The only reason gospel writers like Matthew would have had to include women in such a prominent way would be because it's true and because it reveals God's heart to us, that he is gracious and kind. So when we come to the genealogy in Matthew, that one woman, let alone five, would have been mentioned. This is highly unusual, and even would have been viewed as unnecessary unless Matthew was trying to make a very specific point. In every society, in every culture, if you want to have an important part or role to play, if you want to be viewed as important in your community, then you need to have the right credentials, right? So in Jesus's day, well, in our day, we call that a resume, right? Resumes are our credentials. And what kinds of details do you include on your resume? Things that make you look good, right? You put your education in your degree, but you only list your GPA if it's a 3.5 or higher. You put relevant work experience, leaving out those high school and college jobs, which have little to do with what you're trying to do now. You highlight your successes and leave out your failures. You only list references that you know will speak well of you, 
Not that boss who you never got along with at your old job. In Jesus' day, it was your genealogy and not your resume that was your credentials in society. You see, our culture is very individualistic, so we're often focused on what individuals accomplish. But in ancient times, it would have been your genealogy that people cared about. What people cared about is, who do you come from? Who is your family? And what have they done? Much like modern resumes, it was common for genealogies to be selective. You don't list your crazy uncle or the cousin who never did anything with his life. You want your genealogy to be the who's who of your family tree and you want it to show off. Which means, sadly, that in this ancient context, women were almost never listed in a genealogy. It was incredibly rare. You only put a woman in your genealogy if she was one of these rare, powerful women in the community. So that Matthew lists women here is unusual. But it might make sense to us if he listed women like Sarah or Rebecca, the respected women from Israel's history. But that's not the case. Beginning in verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And in verse 6, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And finally at the end, Mary. This is not the who's who of Israel's history. These are not the women you include if you're trying to impress others for selfish gain or make up a story that's going to spread far and wide. We don't have time to go into great detail about each of these stories, but if you've never read the stories of these women in the Old Testament, they're footnoted for you in your bulletin. And my challenge to you this week is to go home and read these accounts in detail and ask yourself the question, why would Matthew list these women here? But let's summarize these stories briefly. The first woman mentioned in your genealogy is Tamar. Tamar's story can be found in Genesis 38, and if you've never read it before, it is going to shock you. The language of Genesis 38 will shock you if it's new to you. The story begins with Judah, the great-grandson of Abraham. Judah has a son named Er, and Er marries Tamar. Er was a wicked man, and he died. Er had a brother named Onan. And according to the custom of leveret marriage, it was Onan's responsibility to marry Tamar since she was a widow and had no children to take care of her. Onan was unwilling to do so, and I'll spare you the details, but in graphic account, we are told of how and why Onan also dies. Without a husband or an heir to take care of her, Tamar decides to take actions into her her own hands. She dresses up as a prostitute, and she seduces Judah, her father-in-law, who, by the way, is not innocent in this story, She seduces her father-in-law into sleeping with her. Tamar wanted an heir from the line of Judah, and she was willing to do so no matter what. Not only did she act as a prostitute, but by Jewish moral code, she was considered someone who committed incest. The second woman in the genealogy is Rahab. The story of Rahab is in Judges 2, and I actually think it's quite comical in a way. It reminds me of a scene from a Chevy Chase movie. Israelite spies are sent into the land of Canaan. They're on the run from trouble and they run into a building and they look up and behold, they're in a brothel. 
Rahab the prostitute comes and speaks to the spies. As it turns out, she is a woman who has heard of the God of Israel, and she wants to come and live among the Jewish people. And so although she is a foreigner and a prostitute, two big no-nos at the time, she is shown grace and brought in to live with the community of faith. Ruth, in the Old Testament book of the same name, is shown to be a virtuous woman. So why is she listed here with Tamar and Rahab? Although she was virtuous herself, she came from a people who was known for being very unvirtuous. Ruth was a Moabite. And the name Moab literally means of my father or of his father. The Moabite people came from the relationship between Lot and his daughter. Moabites had come to be seen as the worst of the worst, a people which was to be most despised and looked down on. And so we read in places like Deuteronomy 23.3 that no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. So with these three names so far, you not only have gender outsiders, you have racial outsiders, you have immoral women, moral outsiders. These women, by Mosaic law, are supposed to be excluded permanently from the presence of God. And yet here they are, listed in Jesus' family tree. To worship in the presence of God required cleanliness. God is holy and he will not tolerate the presence of sin. These women were regarded as permanently uncleanable. There was no hope for these women. And yet Jesus brings them in. Not only does he bring them in, but they're in the who's who of his family tree. These women are his resume. That tells you something about the kind of people that Jesus came for. And it tells you something about the kind of people that Jesus loves. He comes for the sick, the needy, the brokenhearted, the sinful, the outcast, and the lowly. He's not ashamed of them. And he's not ashamed of us. The last woman in this list is interesting because she isn't named. Instead, Bathsheba is simply referred to as Uriah's wife. And you might think that this is a dig at Bathsheba because she's not named. I mean, she's not worthy of being named. But it's actually quite the opposite. This is a slam on David. By using the title Uriah's wife, Matthew is forcing us to remember the whole story. David, the great king of Israel, when he was at his lowest, used and abused Bathsheba, the wife of his friend, a married woman, for his own twisted pleasure. When she became pregnant, David had his friend and her husband, Uriah, murdered so that he could cover up the evidence and marry Bathsheba. Do you see what Matthew is doing? He's telling us, in effect, that the great King David is no better than a prostitute like Tamar or Rahab. David has no more of a right to be in the presence of God than anyone else. Both immoral and moral people have no business of being in the presence of God on their own. Religious and non-religious people both need the grace of God because the sin of the human heart condemns us all equally. 
the message of the genealogy, the message of Christmas, is that all people need God's grace because all people are equally lost. So what does that mean for us? Two practical applications that I want us to take away this morning. First, that the women of Christmas mentioned here ought to humble us. There's a reason I spent so much time on historical context of genealogies and women in Jesus' day, because here's the point. If you're writing a history of the Messiah in a first century Eastern Jewish context, you don't do what Matthew did unless it's true. You don't list women, certainly not these women, unless it's true, unless you have nothing to hide, and unless you want people to know the absolute truth about Jesus. And if the story of Christmas is true, then we ought to be humbled to the dust. Because that means it really is worse than we thought. See, the message of Christmas is not that good people can become better or that kind people should be kinder. I was listening to a sermon by a pastor friend of mine recently, and he was telling a story about an interfaith dialogue panel that he was on a number of years ago. And so I think he was the only Christian on the panelist, and there was also some uh, Muslim imams and some Jewish rabbis on the panel, and they were going around the panel asking each of them to, to say, what is the most common misconception about your faith? And they're going around the room, and when they got to my pastor friend, he simply said this, the most common misconception about Christianity is that good people go to heaven. See, Christianity defies all of our normal categories. Christianity neither simply exalts good people nor does it simply condemn bad people. It humbles all people equally because all people are in equal need of the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. And if you're here this morning and you say to yourself, I know I'm not great, but I'm not really that bad. Wrong. That's pride talking. That is a sinful comparison with others, believing that you're more worthy of God's love and grace and forgiveness than other people would be. But none of us are worthy and able to stand in God's presence without his perfection and his holiness striking us dead. Heaven is out of reach for each and every one of us in this room. Which is why heaven came to us. Away in a manger, no crib for his bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. Do you understand how humiliating that is? The eternal Son of God was born into poverty in a stable. Can you imagine for a minute how that smelled? The shame that Mary would have felt that night walking around clearly in labor and going from hotel to hotel and being looked at by innkeepers and saying, I know who you are and you can't stay here. Yet this is where God came into the world. 
Why? To show us how great our need really is. Has the message of Christmas humbled you yet? Has it melted your heart? Don't go through Advent and Christmas this year with a false impression of what this is all about. Beneath the flashy lights and the sounds and the seasonal foods is the true story of the Son of God, our Savior, born into a manger, born into a messed up family tree so that we could know the love of God. Taking on the likeness of sinful flesh because of the love with which he loved us. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is why the women of Christmas ought not just to humble us, but it also ought to deeply encourage us. Each and every one of us want a place to belong with people who love us and accept us exactly and precisely as we are. And yet each one of us, to one degree or another, can't shake the painful feeling that we are unworthy or unable of being loved. Look at the lives of each of these women. Their lives would have been filled with so much shame. Tamar, whose public trial made her known as the woman who slept with her father-in-law. Rahab, a foreigner and a prostitute. Ruth, a widowed Moabite. Bathsheba, the victim of King David. Mary, the unwed young mother claiming to give birth to the king of the world. And yet each one of them, listed here in Jesus' ancestry, each one of them became royalty. Each one of them received the grace, the forgiveness, the kindness, the love, and the mercy of God. Jesus is not ashamed to call them mothers and grandmothers. You might even say he's proud to call them his own. Hebrews chapter 2 says he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Do you get that? He's not ashamed of those things which bring us shame. It doesn't matter what your resume says. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what addiction you carry or who you've hurt. Jesus is not ashamed of you. He's not. He's not. See, this genealogy really is Jesus' credentials. Not to be the kind of Savior we deserve, but the kind of Savior that we needed. So in Matthew, the New Testament begins with Jesus' family tree, his ancestry. And the New Testament ends, as we read in Revelation 21, with his descendants. With all those whose name is written in his book of life. And so this Advent season, you and I, can find ourselves with the family name written in Jesus' family tree if we will trust him by faith. Trust in Christ your Savior this morning. Let's pray. Father, when we look at this genealogy, it's so easy for us to pass by the names written here. But as we have seen these last two weeks, your grace and your mercy and your kindness and your love is dripping from every page in your scriptures. And so, Lord, this 
this morning, this afternoon, this week, this Christmas season, Lord, I pray that you would humble us, that you would encourage us, help us to slow down and meditate on this true story of Christmas, that you came into the world not to make good people better, but to redeem and to save the lost of which we count ourselves. Amen.